I didn't like healthy food. I had no interest at all previously to health, nutrition. You know, I knew nothing. I knew literally nothing. So who on earth am I? to publicly write about this topic. Like truly, who am I to do that? I think that's what really, really, really stopped me. I was so embarrassed. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea. And working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Ella Mills, the founder of Deliciously Ella. Ella started Deliciously Ella as a blog for plant-based recipes over 10 years ago when she was still at university. Having been diagnosed with a chronic condition, spending time in and out of hospital with drugs having no meaningful impact, she turned to the internet for answers. Originally, she started the blog as a personal project, but she eventually released it to the public. It turned out it was something other people were looking for too, and it gained over 130 million hits within the first few years. Buoyed by this success, she launched an app, which went straight to number one in the UK app store for food and drink, thanks to the growing online community that she's so known for today. She also released a cookbook, becoming the best-selling debut cookbook of all time in the UK. Together with her husband Matt, she's grown the business even further, expanding into a deli, which is now their flagship restaurant, as well as many new products listed in places like Waitrose, Starbucks, Tesco and Sainsbury's. We talk about why building moments of calm is so important to her, what people get wrong about plant-based diets, her skincare routine, and why she doesn't want to be famous. I hope you enjoy. It's been 10 years since you first launched the first recipe, right? It was spiced sweet potatoes with an avocado cream. And deliciously, Ella comes a lot like other side projects from solving a personal pain. So you were studying at St. Andrews University and you fell sick. You were dizzy. You had a racing heart rate, chronic fatigue, digestive issues and UTIs. And then you were finally diagnosed with, I think it was an autoimmune disease. Is that right? It's, it's actually not an autoimmune disease, but it's the kind of manifestation is quite similar it's it's a dysregulation of your autonomic nervous system it's called postural tachycardia syndrome and yeah I couldn't control my heart rate my digestive system my circulation my immune system Um, I had brain fog I had chronic fatigue I had um, extreme infections I spent three and a half years on antibiotics used to have to have antibiotic drips Um, basically there was kind of nothing in my body that was working as it should do you had all of these symptoms and then you were diagnosed drugs that weren't working. And then at some point something clicked and you just thought, I'm going to do my own research on food, diet or other things that can help. Before we go into kind of where that developed, I would love to take a moment to really talk about how it felt being in that time. Your life looks so amazing online and and you're gorgeous and you've had amazing success with your work. And I think it's really important 
for people to actually understand this isn't a story. It's, it's your experience. You lived through that. It's not something that you did so you had a story that you could sell to like build deliciously. Eller. It was a real experience. Before you'd started the blog, before you were, you know, even thinking about transmuting that pain into something else, like, how did you feel? I think if I had to choose one word, it would just be kind of apathetic. I just gave up. I think it was so overwhelming and felt so insurmountable and so alien and so confusing. And it was that point, as you said, like all the drugs at this point for the condition were repurposed from other conditions. And so there's no guarantee they'd work. I just assumed that they would because it's kind of how, you know, normally you'd get tonsillitis and take antibiotics and you'd be better. And you just, I don't know, came at it with that naivety, really. And I think it was kind of six, nine months in where I was so unwell and I, you know, I could barely leave the house. I couldn't do anything. I had no sense of what I could do in the future. I would never be able to have a normal job, live a normal life with this um, chronic condition. And I was being told it was chronic. You might live like this for the rest of your life. And I just gave up. And I think that was what, that was almost the scariest point is people were like, you know, you must've felt so anxious. I actually didn't feel anxious at all. I felt catatonic um, because I feel like anxiety is almost a symbolism of caring about something when something makes you feel anxious. Whereas I just didn't care. I literally, I just didn't care. And I think it was that level of disconnect from the world that was almost like looking back on it, especially in retrospect, that was the most frightening point. And I'm sometimes really surprised that I somehow found a way through that that's why I think your story is so important because this is telling people even when you feel apathetic and hopeless and depressed or you can take one small step to do something that will make you feel slightly more empowered I think so many side projects people have that in common you know they experience some pain and they think, fuck, like, I don't want other people to have this, or I just need to do something about this, you know, to make myself feel better. I really want to go back to that first recipe. Where did you get that energy from? Like, was it for you or was it for someone else when you first wrote that recipe? Yeah, no, and you're so right. And I think just to circle back on something you said there, I think it is that sense of empowerment that you get because I think starting is whatever we're talking about starting. Starting is the hardest point. It's the kind of confidence and vulnerability and bravery of saying like this is what I'm going to do I'm going to put my time my attention towards this goal and actually just stopping all the 101 excuses that we all give ourselves we'll start next week once this has happened I can start once I'm this person I can start we all do it as just human conditioning but it's it I feel like that it, like if you're in a place where you're not particularly happy or you're feeling stuck or you're feeling low self-esteem I feel like continuing to break that self-trust of telling yourself you'll do it and not doing it every day only exacerbates the problem so I think if you do one thing today I would say like just start even the smallest tiniest most incremental step but just take a teeny teeny step Um, and as you said I think whilst that recipe was the hardest it was the most rewarding I didn't it was for me it was this realization that I had that like I didn't really have a future and that's what really hit home for me it was starting to realize like I would never because my friends were all graduating and they were all starting jobs and there was no way that I could have had a job and it was in realizing the fact that I was unemployable and then kind of how on earth would that 
translate as I went forward. You know, if I couldn't work, they couldn't really go out. They couldn't really do X, Y, and Z. Like, am I just going to sit basically within these four walls for the rest of my life? And it was just, I think it was stopping being apathetic and actually realizing that that was where I was. And I think I'd hidden that from myself for so long. And I kept thinking, this will change it, this will change it, this will change it. And it was realizing that doctors didn't have any other drugs to give me at this point. And so there was nowhere else to go. This was my life. And I think it was the owning of the fact that this was my life, as I said, which I hadn't really done, was the moment of change for me and of thinking, okay, I, I can't have this be my life. This this can't be the only option. Like if there's nothing else anyone else can do. And I had played a victim in that sense. I wanted other people to solve the problem. I wanted the doctor to give me a pill and everything would be fixed. I was desperate for someone to give me an answer. And I think that's something we can probably all relate to quite a lot where actually we're looking always so externally for solutions. And and I really had not internalized this solution at all. And I literally went onto Google and I just started Googling like, healing chronic conditions and things like that and I just started to come across people all over the world all different ages sexes walks of life all different conditions some much more serious than others some more acute more chronic and etc but all these people had had massive effects on their um, conditions and on their life from changing the way that they lived and I just it was such a penny dropping moment and I was like well look if it's worked for them I have literally nothing to lose at this point and so it was really it was a kind of desperate need to help myself and and try and own the situation and find that sense of empowerment again because I'd kind of lost it from all facets of my life. Self-esteem is such an important word I think because it's almost like you build acts of self-efficacy through in mastery and you know that's how you build self-esteem is to actually as you say deliver on promises that you make yourself um, but I think it, that is the hardest bit. And so you were almost at this point where you're at the lowest, you were Googling, trying to find solutions. What gave you the confidence to actually publicly post something when you were feeling so low and you had such low self-esteem? Like There are people who are like kind of confident who don't have the confidence to post things online. So I'm curious, like, yeah, how did you, what gave you that push? So initially I didn't want anybody to see it. Um, it was, I, I, I'd said, no one can see this. Like, this is just for me. This is just my own project. And I said, and I, you know, I sort of said to my mom and, and to a couple of friends that I was still kind of friends with really, to be honest at this point, um, you know, let's wait maybe in three months, let me, let me find my feet first. And I was also so aware of the fact that like, I had no credibility to be doing this project. You know, I didn't cook. I didn't like healthy food. I had no interest at all previously to health, nutrition. You know, I knew nothing. I knew literally nothing. And so who on earth am I to publicly write about this topic? Like truly, who am I to do that? And I I think that's what really, really, really stopped me from wanting to. I was so embarrassed that people would think what people would think, really. And I also really shied away from talking about my illness. It had made me feel very other very alien and I really hadn't told people about it and so but it was after three months and I said you know if in three months if the sites had 10,000 hits then you know maybe I'll show you and it had and so my friend was like well you've you've got to show me now (laughs) 
yeah, fair enough. I, I said I would. So I showed this one girlfriend and and she's still a really, really close friend. And she was she was so supportive throughout. And she said, well, can I just say one thing? It's very strange to me because what you're doing is so strange. You know, as in, I know that sounds so almost egocentric to say that posting plant-based recipes was that strange, but it really was that strange 10 years ago. No, plant-based wasn't a term. People were not talking about this, which is why I started writing the recipes. And she said, you know, what you're sharing, you know, sweet potato brownie is so different to what everyone does. And you're not giving people any reason to understand why you're doing that. It just feels quite strange. It quite feels quite random. I think you need to tell people, you know, these strangers who are reading the site I think you need to tell them like what the project is and why you're doing it and I also don't think anyone's ever going to relate to it if they can't see a photo you know who is who is this it's so anonymous and so I um I uploaded a photo of myself and I wrote down the story and I wrote down you know that I'd been unwell and what had happened and what I tried and what I wanted to do next and I wrote you know if this, you know, my negative experience can help one one person, then then this will have taken the worst thing that ever happened to me, kind of the ultimate negative and, and turn it into a positive. And that would be, you know, extraordinary. And I'd be so grateful for that. And, um, and that was so, 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 so empowering. And I do think, again, if people, there's things that you want to do in your life and you're nervous, you're nervous what other people think, your kind of ego's talking to you about that. I do think there is something really, really empowering about just owning it and trying to find a way to feel comfortable in that vulnerability. But again, as you said, you know, I do think when you're coming out this place of having nothing to lose, it, it is helpful. You know, it really, really is. How did you get 10,000 people to visit it in the first few months when it was so not known as a as a need or as a I don't know I don't really know I mean I still don't really know how these things really work but I think you know blogs and WordPress sites they were really taking off I think the the recipes would have just come up for people searching because I was posting a lot of recipes on there it wasn't the nascent stages because they were established but there weren't many to read so they were kind of and they were really gaining a lot of traction whereas again now I don't think people read blogs in the same way I think starting in that same way the internet's very very crowded there's a lot of online recipes I just don't think it would have had the same pickup you released a book on Amazon this was your debut cookbook and it became I think it still is the highest selling debut cookbook ever in the UK which is insane why do you think it has had such phenomenal success yeah it spent eight weeks at number one on Amazon across all categories um yes so I don't think it's one thing and I think success really is one thing. I think it's very multifaceted. Um, I think there's 100% a right time, right place element. You know, I think there's, you know, moving first into a space is undoubtedly helpful. You know, it's, it's infinitely more difficult. You know, I look at, you know, our move, for example, into retail, that's 90% of our business now. That's by far the bulk of the revenue. We're the number one brand, for example, in our category in Waitrose. Like, We've got, you know, our snacks are driving more growth in the cereal bar category than any of the big brands that you know of across Sainsbury's, et cetera. But they never would have got it. Getting them listed now would be almost, it would be nigh on impossible. Why? Because the space is now so busy. Whereas when we listed them, there weren't natural plant-based snacks on shelf. And so there was a white space opportunity to be taken. Now 
to to say that you're going to then sell better than all this brands that have now taken those spaces that's really really difficult so I, I don't think you can underestimate being at the right place at the right time but I think that we simplify that far too much as well in our culture because a lot of people could have taken that space and I think the reality is is that I think and I, I don't want to simplify it but I, I do think that hard work is something that is fundamentally really what it is and and I know Kim Kardashian got in a lot of trouble <laughs> for saying that that was the root of her success. And I see the backlash, but I also see what she was trying to say, which is that, you know, I don't think people with the best businesses have the best ideas, have the best products, are the best people. I do think that, like, it is so hard and it is so relentless. And we have both worked 365 days a year for seven and a half years now on this. We've cancelled I think we've tallied 18 holidays. We've been to no weddings. We have no friends. <laughs> and I don't say this till I do us down. I just say like, this is our life. Mm. And we have poured everything into this. And when there's a problem, doesn't matter what's going on, we cancel it and we fix the problem. And I just don't think you can underestimate what, what that really looks like with people. And I think that there is, because we see so much of like hashtag girl boss and entrepreneurship through the lens of social media, I think has created this glamorization. That's just not the reality. I think the people with the best success are people who have good ideas and they have good sustainable business models as opposed to this consistent reliance on external capital. But I also think it's consistently putting in the work and it's relentless. We've never licensed the brand. We do everything ourselves. We do our own supply chain. You know, we do our own commercials, etc. There is no licensing anywhere. And again, that would have been a much easier route. Wouldn't have built the valuation that the company has, but it would have been a much, 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 much easier route. And I think what's driven us, though, is being useful. As a listener, reader, however you're interacting with the brand, we actually can play a genuine role in your life that differentiates us from the other brands. We've seen that time and time again I mean we're our oat bars I was talking about earlier you know we'll make 14 million of them this year you know just as an interesting example they launched into store in 2017 and they launched and I I really need to find out the name because I can't remember now but they launched next to a bar that was was it was one of the big multinationals we did not have a marketing budget like when I we didn't have anyone in our marketing team we had organic social media and the the awareness of the brand and the authenticity of the brand we had zero pounds we had no external capital to spend on it they had a multi-million dollar marketing budget just for this product that product's not in store anymore it was delisted it did not work it did not sell and i i think it's a very very interesting example of the fact that like i think there's this premise that like you know get loads of money it will work and i just don't think that the world works like that i think you've got to create something that consumers think is useful that's genuine that's something that they can connect to now people probably would call it like community-based marketing right do you find that phrase now a bit do you ever feel that's a bit icky I think it just doesn't work I think that's what like I would say and you know it's like if you want to actually build community and by the way I think that's an amazing way to build a brand start by actually building a community Like, why should someone take part in that community? Like, what do they gain? And I think this, like, is how a lot of big brands use social media. Like, the consumer benefits 
in no shape or form from it. It's entirely transactional. Like it's not, doesn't kind of play into the algorithms and the content that people want, et cetera. And I, I think so many brands struggle with that. So I, I don't find it icky as much as like I find it almost, almost I find it naive. Like I just don't think it works like that. You can't just say like, I'm going to build a community and then they'll sell my product. Yeah. You have a lot of people who absolutely love you. And then with any size of notoriety, you're going to have people who are critics or detractors. And I think with you, because you you're you're so open and you share so much about your 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 own life, sometimes it feels like people can be quite weirdly like disappointed or fr- as if they're your friend or they know you and they're like, hey, you don't do that. And you're like, I'm allowed to do what I want or I'm allowed to change. Do you find that difficult? I think I would find that so tricky. Like as if they know you, you know, being like disappointed. Yeah, with you. like your mom. The thing is always trying to have those honest conversations with yourself, isn't it? And I think it's of realizing again, it's like if what we want to do is help people change their health and change their well-being, like as you said, the idea that everyone's gonna like what you say all the time is so mad. It's it's so far from what would be reality. And so I think it was like it's so worth it though for the people whose life it fundamentally enhances. And so I think it was just this recognition that like you've just got to let it go. Like, just don't respond, don't engage in it. Just like everyone's entitled to their own opinions and expectations. And like, if you don't meet them, that's okay. But again, I think this all gets so much easier because, you know, I think especially again, and I'm sure anyone who's in like early stages or kind of like just thinking through a premise or something that they want to do, in the early stages, everything does matter. So I think having that perspective is really difficult because every day is make or break. Like you are so, I mean, no one's guaranteed. Like I, we're we're just off Oxford Street and every day I walk past the old top shop on Oxford Circus and I feel like it speaks to me. It's like, you're never safe. You know, there's no one, the fact that that's not there anymore. It's like, it speaks to the fact that like being complacent is the worst thing you could ever be. But equally you're not, you know, we've got the business to a point now that like, each individual thing adds up to a tapestry that's whether we continue to succeed and grow whether we don't but each one on its own won't make us or break us and I think it becomes easier to let go of that criticism or that disappointment or that not working out because you it it's not that individual thing is not all or nothing and I think also if I've learned one thing it's that pretty much nothing's ever either as good or as bad as it initially seems. And again, I think the more experience that you have, the more like really difficult challenges that you've had, the big obstacles, you realize like there's pretty much a way through everything. You've just got to be willing to try and find that solution to pivot, to change, whatever it is, but almost nothing's definitive. And again, I think the more experience that you have and the more times, it's like you were saying earlier, you know, self-esteem building is almost in repetition. It's keeping doing the things and then you've got an arsenal that you can show yourself like that you'll be okay and that you can do it. And I think the more you do it, the easier it becomes almost to relax into it. As I said, not because collectively everything doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But nowadays most disappointments won't make or break things it's so interesting that what you're saying at the beginning around the difference between like the early stages of the business as well because it feels like at the early stages it's probably quite difficult to differentiate feedback from 
people who are hurt and looking to hurt you because they're hurt, you know, like transference. And it feels like there's a lot of people online who are just disappointed in life. And then they just put that on other people without thinking that there's someone else there. But, but then there's also amongst that people who are really offering helpful, constructive feedback. Exactly. And you've got to take that on board. Like that's essential. Like that's absolutely essential. Even if it's not delivered in the nicest way, like that is critical. But how do you do it? Because I feel like I'd, I'd need to get someone to do it for me because otherwise I'd get distracted, like, seeing all the... <laughs> but if you, to get someone to do it for you, you don't really learn. As in, like, you've got to, like, have that finger on the buzzer, like, really get the pulse of it. You know, is this an isolation? Is it not? Because also, like, sometimes the those people shout the loudest, but actually, like, changing something would not be the right thing to do for the vast majority of other people. So I think you've got to be so close to consumer feedback to really... To, if you're going to use it as anything to kind of drive your business or your decision making. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I think it was just realizing so quickly when you're talking to so many people that like not everyone's going to like it and that's fine. And it was just kind of removing your like personal self from it. Um, and when it is like deeply personal criticism, which is genuinely quite rare because most of the time it's much more to do with like what we do. I should ignore it now I just block it now I'm like really empowered to be like see ya um but um yeah but you know I don't I don't talk a lot about things like motherhood I don't you know I that's just I, I don't want to open those rabbit holes and I'm like really open in saying that like I don't have the confidence to do that I don't have the desire to do it either like it's not a debate that I passionately want to have all my opinions on the matter in the public space but I think I think there's many more difficult um, public conversations to have than the ones that we have. Yeah, true. Have you had, have you ever sat down and been like, I'm happy to talk about this stuff. I'm not happy to talk, talk, talk about this stuff. Not really. There's nothing that I'm really like, but I mean, it's ultimately like, you know, I don't see myself as an influencer or any kind of like Z-list celebrity, like, I'm the founder of Delicious Yellow, our business. And so anything to do with health, well-being, the business, mental health, physical health, et cetera, I, I could talk about that till the cows come home. But as I said, like, I don't want to be famous. I don't, that doesn't drive me. I've got no interest in that. Like, I had approaches for things that are like my idea of hell on earth. Like, you know, I'm a celeb, get me out of here. Like, I'm never going to do things like that. That is just, it literally couldn't interest me less. No, there's no judgment for other people. That's right for them, but that's not what's right for me. And so, so I don't really get, you know, people when they're doing an interview is about health. It's about well-being. It's about our books. It's about like the data behind plant-based diets, etc. And so, but as I said, so I, I don't do so much about kind of like, who I am outside of that as I said I wouldn't do things on like motherhood or raising our children just not for me does it if you're someone who doesn't actually enjoy the fame side of it and I think absolutely deliciously Ella as a brand is is distinct from you but you are a big part of it still and and who you are and you know your story does it ever feel do you ever wish you could just like be like erase yourself from the internet and just be like just running the business you know quietly no I love that side of it I love that being able to kind of I guess if I feel you know and certainly as the business has grown and we've got people so much more qualified to do every role in the business than I am and I think you know in that like hard look of like what what do you bring to the table Ella like what do you actually do now for the business that's helpful and I think what I am 
good at is almost like translating the information for people. You know, it's what I did for myself. It was the premise of Delicious Ella. Like there's all sorts of information out there about nutrition and well-being and like how do I help? How do I actually do this on every day? Like how do I do this on a Monday? And I think that's what I'm good at. I think I'm good at inspiring people to make changes in getting the information to feel tangible and exciting and delicious, which is how it's actually going to stick in people's lives. And I think I really enjoy being part of that. I really enjoy being part of these conversations. You know, I could definitely see a world where, you know, I, you know, more involved in kind of advocacy for healthy, healthier kind of policies and things like that. Absolutely. I really enjoy that part of it. I'm very happy to be known for what I do. I just don't want to be known for what I wear. And as I said, it's no judgment for anyone else, but it's just, it's just not what drives me. Have you ever had a moment where you're just like, either something's gone wrong or you're like, how bad has it got? Oh my God, it's got so bad. Like, definitely. I mean, much more in the beginning than now. But yeah, you have moments where you're like, this is like, there's no way this will keep going. You know, we'll be bust next week, like 100%. Did any come to mind? There was a moment in, two, it was early, it was early 2017, which was the, a lot had been going on personally. And that had a huge amount of kind of public criticism that year and basically health eating has exploded and then there was a backlash against it and I was just very young and I was very green and very naive and 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 I just it was a moment where we you know I could have stopped like we could have kind of done something else and I that was the biggest moment of realizing like is this worth doing like is this really what I want um and that was the same year that my mother-in-law got really ill and then she she passed away the next year and I think that all kind of collated to like is this what we really want and and the honest answer was yes and it was from reading the dms and it was people saying like this has changed my life like I feel like a different person this has healed this condition this condition this condition like I finally feel like myself I've got energy to be with my kids whatever it was and it was like honestly who cares how I feel like this is such an important mission like on the most basic sense 58 percent in the country don't even eat vegetables every day our collective health is abysmal and our you know rate of chronic conditions is through the roof like rates of cancer in under 50s is growing really fast very much linked to a decline in our gut microbiome very much linked to our decline in our lifestyles like it's abysmal and I feel very very passionately about that and I, I want to change that and I want to play a role in that and I, I feel I can and I feel like I've got some strengths to be able to do that and we've got a community of people who are engaged in that and I find that like to be gen- a genuine honor but I definitely had a second moment of you know what do I want to do with my life and is this is this a good decision after my well, especially after becoming a mother to two children and like the, the juggling act and the realization you know like I don't take them to nursery very much I almost never pick them up and you know I'm I'm not there for everything and that's a you know that is a choice and and it was you know again like you know it's just you know I think that's something any woman goes through after having children like what what's the balance and I, I was realizing actually like I get a lot from from work and, and I really really love it and I, I do feel I'm finding a better balance now and picking them up more and being there more but I couldn't I, I, I love it too much but it, I think it is important to have those moments where you kind of check in. You seem very calm I'm curious do you feel calm or do you sound calm? 
I now feel calm and sound calm. If we've been having this conversation anywhere of like five to seven years ago, I might have sounded calm. I was not calm. Um, I And I think it was honestly was that coming out of that startup phase and the extraordinary intensity of it. And it was this thing where you realize there was such huge opportunity and excitement and our life was unfolding in the most kind of adventurous way. But it comes with a lot of compromises and sacrifices as with anything in life. Life is a series of choices. And I, I just don't think I was enjoying it because there's so many stressful things that would happen all day, every day, and we were moving so fast. And so I was just basically living in this kind of emotional roller coaster. And I think it was just a really conscious decision of, okay, this is what our life is going to be. And I say ours because my husband and I own the business together. And so the fact that we're both in that intense journey, I think is definitely adds fuel to the fire really of like how all consuming it is. And I think the decision really was like, well, if this is what we're going to do and it is what we want to do, then we, we've got to really enjoy it. And I think in doing that, for me, it was really kind of putting tools in place so that you're not reactive because even still, like there's disasters that happen all day, every day. And if you keep reacting to them, then it's just miserable. And then at that point, it's no point having your own company. Like it would be much better to hand more responsibility over to somebody else. What practical things did you put in place to kind of bring the fun back? Would you say the main tools were meditation and yoga? Yeah, yeah. And I think meditation is the is really the number one thing for me. And it is, I get up between kind of 5.30 and 6 every day. I've got two little children, two and three. And so they're up normally by seven. But getting up at that time means I've got anywhere between an hour, an hour and a half of my own time and I can do whatever I like but it's always quiet so I that's when I meditate I'll do some some yoga I'll drink coffee in silence and do sudoku my favorite activity um or you know it's very very quiet and it just gives me a sense of peace of headspace of perspective and it's so interesting how different the day feels even if the day is identical but it used to be like you wake up with an alarm or you wake up with the girl shouting I'm awake and you're straight into breakfast and then you're straight into the commute and then you're straight into an intense day at work and then you're rushing home and then you're finishing your emails and you're trying to feed yourself and you just collapse into bed and like you can only do that so many times before life just feels like it's sucked out all the fun all the joy any sense of kind of point and as I said I feel like the stress then really starts to accumulate. I feel like People will be interested to know your daily routine. Like, so you get up at what, 5, 5.30? People are going to think I'm crazy. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I, I like, and I really, and obviously if you don't have children waking up, then it's, it is different. But I do, I feel like everybody needs calm every day. Like we live in such a stressful world. Like you've got, like on a physiological level, you need to balance that out. Like you can't just live in your sympathetic nervous system all the time, which is how most of us live now. Like you do need some calm to feel a sense of peace, to be able to enjoy the world and not feel chronic stress. Like I don't feel stress in any shape or form, which I think is a miracle. And and as I said, that's a, a, you know, a long process to get to that point. But I, you know, I do think it's worth getting up early for. And so, yeah, I meditate, I do yoga, drink coffee in peace. And then, yeah, I never miss breakfast with the girls, like really never, ever. 
and bath time and bedtime either. And um, and then I'm in the office all day and I, I do a kind of multitude of different things. No day's ever the same, which which I love. I probably like, yeah, I'd get bored very quickly. Um, otherwise, I'm, I am genuinely very grateful for that. I also think I'm going to get in trouble if I don't ask what your skincare routine is like. I asked, <laughs> I asked a friend of mine, hey, I'm actually speaking to Ella Mills tomorrow. Um, what would you ask her? And she paused and she said, what's her skincare routine? No, I do love skincare. I really, really, really do. So I'm like on her way to like 100, 100% with that. Do you know why I actually keep it so simple though? This is like details, but the more products I use, the worse my skin gets, generally speaking. The best found the best thing discovery I've had recently is a brand called S E S E. They've got a foundation that's also an SPF, but it's not like a foundation foundation. It's so light. It's like a tinted moisturizer, but it's properly tinted. That is magic. And then also Pi, the beauty brand, P-A-I. They've got a, I think it's called Glow, and it's like a hyaluronic acid. Um, sparkly serum that it gives you glow so those are the two best products in the world and honestly you like look in the mirror afterwards and you're like this is <laughs> this, is, this is a big improvement than three minutes ago I want to ask you about your book it's, it's called how to go plant-based and it's really a combination of a recipe book and nutritional information and guidance around actually how to specifically for families um, on how to kind of go plant-based and, and eat more plant-based food. What do you think is the most common misconception around the deficiencies of a plant-based diet? So I, for example, often hear, oh, how do you get protein is the classic. And then also, but don't you need meat for energy? What is the thing that you hear most often that makes you most annoyed? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, first of all, like I'm a big, and I talk about this a lot in the book, like I'm a big fan of a kind of plant-rich or flexitarian approach. Like I don't believe that 100% plant-based is the right thing for everybody in any shape or form. I think you've got like anything has to be genuinely sustainable, which means it has to work in your life. And I, I don't think that's the case for everybody by any means. So I think, A, take the pressure off. But the protein, is, it's got to be number one, hasn't it? Like, it's just, it's like, the, there are questions that are like, yeah, to, you know, you've got to think about, you know, where you're getting your calcium from. That's good to know the sources. Like, that's good to have that top of mind to be getting those into your diet. Protein, it's just, there's no one in the Western world, you know, I'm talking about healthy individuals, not with medical conditions. There is, you, they are not we are not deficient in protein like every study shows that vegans pescatarians vegetarians omnivores they all eat more the protein than you need like omnivores eat way more protein than you need so like just don't worry about protein unless you only eat the same thing three meals a day seven days a week just you probably don't need to be thinking about it whereas fiber for example like fiber we just like the the average i think one in ten people in the uk get enough fiber every day it's no one and fiber is like the critical component of a healthy gut and obviously a healthy gut is a critical component of a healthy mind and a healthy body and so i think that's really interesting i think the average intake is about 60 percent of what you need so i always find that quite fascinating that it's like Oh, where do you get this? Where do you get that? And I'm always like, where do you get all these? That is the most annoying thing. I don't mind getting a lecture from you if you're eating a great diet, but you're not even eating a great diet. Exactly. But yeah, it's a massive misconception. Do you, do you also, I, as you're saying that, I was thinking, I think often it's less actually that they think they're deficient in protein. It's more that they associate protein with being strong. It's often men 
who see protein as like the answer to becoming stronger without actually looking at the science of how much protein you need in order to build muscle and what else is needed. Can you debunk that? You know, for men listening who are like, I don't think a plant-based diet's for me because I lift weights. What would you say to them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's an amazing documentary on Netflix, isn't it? Take some parts out, like the testosterone and like erections and stuff like that. But if you take those bits out, like people building muscle on a vegan diet, like you just you just don't need to worry about it. Like gorillas, pound for pound, strongest animals. They're plant-based. It's just it's just such a myth. So I do think like there's many more things to worry about in your diet than protein. How do you convince someone who loves steak to move to a plant-based diet? Well, I think the key is like, it's not no one, well, I'm not saying that you can never have a steak again. I don't think that's the point. The point is, is that you should be having many more servings of fruits and veggies and chickpeas and beans etc and many less servings of steak it would be so infinitely better for human health for planetary health ethical reasons if we went back to having a predominantly plant-based diet and you had a piece of steak once a week every couple of weeks and it was really well sourced and it was so it was much more ethical it's much more environmentally friendly then you would be, you know, we'd be in a completely different place. And I think it's this binary attitude that's like really gets us. This fact of like, well, I can't do this because I won't give up this. No one's saying you have to give it up forever. Just have less. In terms of raising kids, you've said that you're you're relatively flexible, aren't you? I think they're vegetarian at school. I think I read in your book and plant-based at home. I know a lot of people want to raise kids as plant-based, but they're worried about the nutritional deficiencies your book covers a lot of that do you feel like you've done the research now and you're confident that it's the right way to do it yeah definitely I feel I feel confident in it I think I would say that like no two people are the same but I think especially with children because you know they can have fussy habits and things like that so I think that does add a layer of complication I think people need to be very kind of generous and compassionate themselves with that I certainly for us a fully plant-based diet is not right for them because I really want them to go to birthday parties and have the birthday cake and have the ice cream and the cookies and whatever it is and be part of it you know food's a very social experience and I I think that's the same way that I say 100% plant-based isn't right for a lot of adults for very similar reason um and that's that's fine but it's this binary obsession that I think that we have with having to have rules and having you know it's like you know, you can't go out this evening and have pizza and margaritas and then tomorrow make like a blueberry porridge and eat a salad. We're just very bad at having that true sense of balance. One thing I did want to ask you, and this feel free to say that you don't want to talk about it, but I'm just wondering if you want the opportunity to talk about it, which is the financing of it, of Deliciously Ella and how it started and whether you had support from family in those early days or how you actually got it off the ground because I think sometimes as as people go through those that rolodex of excuses of why they can't do something I think one of them is you know she had advantages that I don't have yeah of course yeah of course and I totally understand that I mean we like so no we didn't it was all self-funded but it started so small like it started with cooking classes and supper clubs um and that those were really really popular that made a little bit of money that little bit of money went into an app and then I got the um advance for our first book um which then the first book came out as you said earlier it was an extraordinary um unlikely but an extraordinary success that made a lot of money and that money then went into the first cafe and financing the business the next year we started the food products 
then that all grew. Then in 2017, the business was growing really fast and we weren't at a place to be able to do invoice financing, etc. We suddenly had listings with Sainsbury's, with Ocado, with Waitrose, with Starbucks, Holland and Barrett Boots, like thousands and thousands of retailers and we needed support with cash flow. So we raised a really small amount of money, sub 20% equity, and we bought those shareholders out last year. Um, because we run a really profitable business and we were able to take bank debt and buy the shareholders out. So we're now 100% family owned. Any tips? You've said consistency, passion, authenticity and hard work have all been kind of key components to your success and, and where you've got to today. Are there any final piece of advice that you'd give someone who's sitting in their room, has an idea, but is kind of feeling too shy or too unconfident to actually just make that first step? I think there's two parts of that. I think it's all the advice you gave, but I think it's coupled with like, it has to be financially sensible. You know, I think there's been this massive glamorization of businesses that just hemorrhage cash, especially in the economy we're in now, like that just doesn't work. So I think it's not my area of the business, not my area of expertise. I'm not one to give great financial advice. Like my husband runs all of that side of the business and that split brand to business works fantastically well for us. But I think like, you know, you need margins that made sense. You need cash flow that makes sense. Like ultimately have a great brand, have a great product, be really useful, build a community. But if the business doesn't make sense, it will go under. And like, I can tell you real off a huge number of brands that have started when we started and they've all one by one gone under and they had terrible margins. They were just trying to undercut other people to get listings and they, they don't exist anymore. So I think, you know, I think you've got to be realistic and you've got to be sensible about that. But I think the other thing is like, if what you're doing is that you're not starting because you don't think it's perfect, I would be wary of that because I think that, you know, not, you know look at Netflix, like where they are now started as a DVD business direct to consumer like it's so completely different you know I remember when we had those first investors one of them saying oh the products you have in store now bet you won't have them in store um uh in a few years time you know you'll learn so much you'll evolve you'll adapt you'll grow Mm -hmm. and I was like what they're perfect no they're not in market anymore I think that's almost always the case because you I think there is a sense of like just start like get a minimally viable product and just start because we could have put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off and read another book and done another course. We wouldn't have learned a fraction of what we learned by putting things into market. And so I think you obviously got to have something that's, that is viable, but I also think like, don't let, you know, perfect be the enemy of good because I think really you won't know anything until you start. But then when you do start, like it's hard, but try and remove all sense of ego from it. Cause you're going to get so much wrong. Um, we all do. And I think you've got to be, the the quicker you can fail, the quicker you can pivot, the quicker you can say, this isn't right, let's do something else, the better. Keeping pushing water uphill, never ever the answer. Love it. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. No, thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure, honestly. It was really, really nice to talk about all of this. listening to the out of hours podcast if you enjoyed this episode please do leave it a review i always read them or if you want more from out of hours sign up to our newsletter there's a link in the show notes